Hi, this is Ed Brisson, and you're listening to the Nerd Byword Podcast. Welcome into another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We thank you so much for joining us today. We have a very special interview with comic book writer Ed Brisson. He's got a brand new Kickstarter project uh, called Catch and Release, a murder book story, which is in a lot of ways a return to what, what really helped him uh, you know, catch a big break in, in the comic book writing industry. But first, nerd news. And, and Dave is headed to a galaxy far, far away with a very sticky situation. Dave, what's going on? Yeah, science fiction fans know Alan Dean Foster. Uh, at a minimum, uh, they should know that he wrote a novelization of the original Star Wars movie, as well as its first sequel, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, before Empire Strikes Back was even a thing. He has also written the novelizations for Alien, Aliens, and Alien 3, as well of, as tons of original work. And now he is alleging that he is not receiving royalties for his works anymore after Disney bought the publishers of these books. He held a press conference with the science fiction and fantasy writers of America to call out Disney and to make sure that the same problem isn't happening to other writers as well. His allegation is simple. Disney claims to have bought the publishing rights to his work, but not the contractual obligation to pay the creators as originally agreed upon. Now, Mary Robinette Cowell, the president of the SFFWA, said, and I quote, Disney's argument is that they have purchased the rights, but not the obligations of the contract. In other words, they believe they have the right to publish work, but are not obligated to pay the writer, no matter what the contract says. If we let this stand, it could set a precedent to fundamentally alter the way copyright and contracts operate in the United States. All a publisher would have to do to break a contract would be to sell it to a sibling company. After having several conversations about creators' rights on this show, Chris, including some with some prolific guests, this story has shaken me to my core. Disney is one of the largest holders of quote-unquote intellectual property in the world. They own both Star Wars and Marvel, two properties that I feel very passionate about. The notion that they can simply decide to stop paying creators is frankly outrageous. It almost makes my blood boil. What is it with companies that make money off of nerd properties constantly trying to screw their creators out of payment? These are the people that fill their coffers. It's a disgrace, plain and simple. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm right of the same vein right here. The moment I saw this headline, I thought of our interview and uh, in, in our discussion with Paul Jenkins about, you know, creators' rights and, you know, like, you know, standing up for the little guy. And, and you know, I remember, I think it was Al Milgram, you know, who, who was such a prolific writer for Marvel, you know, back in the 80s. Um, you know, had such serious health problems and, you know, his brother was having to go on to Kickstarter or GoFundMe or, or something of that nature just to, to help with his medical bills. Um, you know, and, and right here, Foster said that his medical, uh, that his wife has serious medical issues and that he himself was diagnosed with an advanced form of cancer in 2016. And in the grand scope of things, this is less than a drop of a bucket. This is like less than a, you know, a single H2O molecule in, in the scope of what disney is making on those profits you know even even in a in, you know in a time you know with the pandemic where a lot of corporations a lot of businesses are are struggling disney is not one of those companies disney is not suffering in the least so so to not be able to take care of their employees this has like the same type of vibes of like Vince McMahon and the WWE, you know, uh, you know, and we watch all the wrestlers that we grew up idolizing dying because they have no rights whatsoever. And, and there's no unionization, um, you know, and, and you also had like Zelina Vega, I think it was came out and said, I support unionization. And 10 minutes later, the WWE really, you know, released a, a press release that they have, uh, you know, 
arrived at a, an agreement to to part ways with her. So it's absolutely crazy that these big corporations are just gobbling up everything, and, and it's incredibly frustrating. It's it's exploitative, is what it is. Yeah, I mean, when it comes right down to it, I don't I don't like Star Wars because Disney owns it. I like Star Wars for the creators that are that are putting this work out there. You know, John Favreau, for example, and Dave Filoni doing the the Mandalorian, such a great show. Whether Disney's name is on that or not is completely irrelevant to me. It is the creative force behind it that makes it relevant to us as fans. And so Disney, obviously, financing all this stuff and owning the property should should get their cut. But let's not cut out the creators who are literally filling their coffers. It is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, and I always go back to what Paul said in that interview was, you know, Marvel do not, you know, does not write the titles. You know, DC does not write those titles. Paul Jenkins writes those titles, you know, um, you know, Jonathan Hickman writes those titles or, or Jerry Conway, you know, writes those titles. You know, it's the creators that are doing the work here. So even if it's some small portion, you know, whatever, you know, and, and you know, be by, you know, be careful what you sign, you know, with the contract. So, so read the fine print. But but at the same time, like this is bad business. You know, this is just despicable. Totally agreed. Now, Chris, maybe you have something a little more positive for us this week. Uh, what is your nerd news story? Well, um, this wasn't really news uh, with the way that uh, Avengers Endgame, you know, ended up with uh, with Thor sitting on the Milano, uh, you know, going back and forth with uh, Star-Lord about who is in charge. Um, you know, it's not really surprising, but it is officially confirmed that, that Chris Pratt uh, and Vin Diesel both are going to reprise their roles as Star-Lord and Groot in Thor Love and Thunder. And, you know, in... You know, in a year where we didn't get a lot of positive, uh, positive things like 2020, a lot of a lot of happy news. Um, it, this gives me something to look forward to. You know, in the entertainment realm, this is probably um, the the MCU entry that I'm that's been announced. That I'm most looking forward to. Um, you know, especially on the heels of. Um, you know, Thor Ragnarok and, and Taika Waititi returning as as the director and Tessa Thompson is an absolute revelation as Valkyrie. Um, you know, the chemistry between the Chris's Hemsworth and Pratt is is just so amazing and it's so wonderful. It's so funny. And I'm just excited to see where this story goes. Not to mention you have uh, you know, Natalie Portman returning as Jane Foster and she's gonna wield the hammer, Dave, and and that's all I need. Yeah, I agree. And in fact, uh, you, you <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, man. You and I don't don't disagree often, but I, I, this is one that I don't 100% agree on. I am not excited about this situation. Um, I know Davis being contrary again. Hear me out, though. I didn't like the interaction between Star Lord and Thor in Endgame. Individually, these are great characters, but the way they bounced off of each other in that movie, while played for laughs, came across more to me like two jerks engaged in a metaphorical measuring contest. It didn't feel fun or humorous, as those characters individually did in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies and and Thor Ragnarok, uh, respectively. It just didn't land for me. And so this doesn't exactly excite me. Uh, more importantly, I'm starting to grow increasingly weary of every movie having to be a crossover of some kind. I've complained a lot about how The Flash appears to have at least 50 Batmen in it. Now Thor gets Star-Lord, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness needs Scarlet Witch, and on and on and on. You know, I enjoy a good comic book crossover between two characters occasionally, but that's how they happen in the comic books occasionally. If I'm reading Superman, I get most of the time Superman stories. Once a year, Batman might show up, sure, but for the most part, I get to enjoy my favorite character's solo adventures. You know, and then there's the fact that this is also supposed to be Jane Foster's movie. You know, this is the story of of Lady Thor, uh, for lack of a better term. And I'm super excited to see this adapted to the big screen. That's what I really want to focus on. Do I really need, you know, two male characters, quote unquote, humorously engaging in a measuring contest when I'm trying to enjoy an adaptation of a fantastic female character? Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I love Star-Lord. In the Guardians movies, he comes across as a deeply flawed but ultimately lovable goof. 
in the Avengers movies, though, I feel like they almost engaged in a, in a hint of character assassination when it came to Star-Lord. He comes across as a stupid jerk. You know, I, I prefer my Star-Lord jerky-free. And, and ultimately, I'm worried that pairing him again with Thor is just going to leave us with echoes of, of their interaction in Endgame. You know, I, I can I can definitely appreciate your take on that, and I definitely see where you're coming from. Now, maybe this will give you some some hope for it. Um, it was listed as a cameo in some of the articles that I read, so uh, I I think it would be I think it would be a huge mistake for them to take up more than you know, like t- say you know, fifteen to twenty minutes screen time for this. Because, you know, Love and Thunder, you know, being the moniker, I think, you know, as, as you said, that, that Jane should be the featured, you know, story arc for this film. So, uh, you know, I'm hopeful for that. And I, and I do I do agree with, um, you know, the the over uh, the over use of, you know, crossovers as well. And and I think some of the best, um, you know, superhero films are, are, are character focused and, and, you know, not too overcomplicated and overinflated. And I will say, maybe I'm being overly negative here. I mean, the one thing that Thor Love and Thunder has that Avengers Endgame did not have is Taika Waititi. And he has a a great ear for comedic dialogue. um, And I loved his Thor Ragnarok. And if anybody can sort of redeem the interactions between Star-Lord and Thor for me, I would say it's probably him. And I think, um, you know, I'm I'm not certain, but I do know that James Gunn was directly involved in the the the, the dialogue for the the Guardians um, in Infinity War, and and if I'm stacking those two up, I I, I enjoyed the Thor and the Guardians, uh, you know, interactions far more than the the ones in Endgame. I totally agree with that assessment. There was just something off about, to me at least, about that entire ending scene with Thor on the Milano. It it felt uncomfortable. I don't know if it was misdirected, if it was miswritten, but it just, it did not land at all. Yeah, I, 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 I... My mind is a little bit fuzzy of the timeline with James Gunn as he, you know, was was fired from Disney and then came back. I, I My gut tells me just if I'm remembering correctly, that this was during the time that he was not involved with the MCU. So that's probably a huge factor uh, at play there. All right, that wraps up our nerd news segment. When we come back from our first break, we're going to sit down with Ed Brisson, uh, comic book writer, and talk about his work for uh Marvel titles, and also his new project, Catch a Release, a murder book story. Stick around. Welcome back, nerds. Uh, for our byword big talk this week, we're sitting down with uh, comic book writer Ed Brisson. Uh, you've seen his work for Marvel Comics with, with titles like The New Mutants, uh, Ghost Rider, Old Man and Dead Man Logan, um, he's got a new Kickstarter coming out called Catch and Release, a murder book story. Ed, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, we always like to start an interview with our guest origin story. Every nerd loves a good origin story. How did all of this get started for you, both, uh, you know, nerdy things and, uh, you know, as a writer as well? Uh, in terms of like my interest in comics, um, my mom used to drag us down to the used bookstore all the time, every weekend, pretty much when we were kids. And uh, my mom is someone who takes a very long time in any store that she's in. And so it would plunk us down in front of the long boxes that were sitting by the front door at the comic shop. And I would usually blow my allowance on comics, um, you know, from the time, I guess I was about, I want to say I was like seven or eight. Um, and yeah, I would just buy 10 cent comics from the comic box. Uh, I got two bucks a week in allowance. So that was 20 comics I could usually go through. I think I'd usually buy 10 comics and then save the rest for, for junk food. But uh, yeah, I started out reading. I think my, like the first comics I remember reading, and I know time-wise these are not the actual first, but these are the first comics I remember picking up were things like uh, Peter Porker, the spectacular Spider-Ham, and... Uh, Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew. <laughs> I was really into that stuff at the beginning. And then from there, I uh, started getting into actual. I think, like, weirdly, I learned more about Spider Man and his rogues gallery 
through the punny versions of them in Spider-Ham. So it was weird for me to come over and start reading Spider-Man and see the, the actual real life version. <laughs> or not real life, but you, you get what I mean. Um, so yeah, from there, I just started picking up uh, Spider-Man, um, Daredevil. Uh, I was really into the Transformers and G.I. Joe comics that were coming out at the time. The Nom as well was a big one for me as uh, early days. Um, and lots of X-Men um, right from, oh God, like dating myself here, but from around the mid eighties, you know, I was reading a ton of X-Men stuff as well. And in terms of me getting into comic book writing, I actually initially had no interest in being a comic book writer. Uh, what I wanted to do. And I think you probably, this probably is uh, common with a lot of writers is uh, I wanted to be a comic book artist. And, uh, you know, I used to take night classes in art when I was younger. When I graduated high school, I went to fine arts to try and hone my skills. And uh, I started drawing comics in like 19, like I, I'd always been drawing comics in high school, but like trying to really get into it in around 93, 94. And I, I only started writing because it's sort of early days for the internet. So I didn't know any comic book writers. I didn't have any really um, tools available to get in touch with comic book writers. Uh, I met one local guy who wanted to be a, com or actually two local guys who wanted to be comic book writers uh, through my comic book shop, but um, they weren't good writers. And they were also just weirdly they're jerks, um, like just super arrogant about their, <laughs> their scripts. Uh, uh, but we're that sort of like nightmare writer that uh, I think many artists dread and that, uh, they felt that they were they were the uh, sole driving force behind this, and you're just sort of the person who's there to make their dreams a reality. And um, so I didn't want to work with those guys, and so I just started writing scripts for myself purely so I would have something to draw. And uh, I started writing and drawing and, and sort of uh, publishing mini comics, uh, what some folks, I guess, would call Ashcans now, but back then we called them mini comics that just run off at the uh, photocopy shop. I used to walk around. I lived in Kelowna, it's uh, British Columbia uh, at the time, and I would walk around selling comics out of my backpack. Uh, I would sell them through the local record shop, through the local comic stores. Um, and I kind of just did that for 16 years. I just self-published comics. Um, both, uh, you know, I put them out in print and bring them to comic shops to sell on consignment or what have you, or I would do stuff online. <clears throat> and I did that up until 2010 and 2010 on my, on my birthday, I was just sort of like really frustrated with how everything was going. I wasn't really getting anywhere in terms of having a career in comics. I gone to college for something else at that point and had a career uh, working in health and safety of all things, uh, but still really wanted to do comic books. And uh, so I had like this sort of real sit down talk with myself and uh, decided that a few things, uh, one was that I really didn't like drawing. It was a thing that I kept doing because I thought that's what I wanted to do when I was younger. Uh, but I just, I'm not, I find it a very frustrating process, which I'm sure most artists do, but it was just something I did not enjoy and couldn't see doing as a career. But I did really enjoy writing. Um, and so I decided that day just to sort of sit down and focus on just writing and started writing a series called, that eventually was called Murder Book, uh, which was just short crime stories um, that I would team up with artists who I knew and, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to have a lot of friends who were artists, you know, after having been doing comics for 16 years, you know, you meet a lot of people along the way and managed to sort of con a few uh, artist friends into drawing some of the murder book stories. And then I just, once they were done, I would throw them up online for free for folks to read. And uh, it was sort of through that, that I, I guess, got discovered, even though at that point I, I'd sort of given up on the idea of really having getting in with any of the publishers and was just sort of making these comics to kind of satisfy myself. And for some reason that resonated with publishers and 
you know, I ended up working with DC a little bit, uh, Image and Boom and Dark Horse and IDW. And, you know, now I'm at uh, Marvel. And uh, in a lot of ways, your uh, Marvel stuff has really stood out to us. In writing The New Mutants and, and Empire X-Men, you were one of the individuals on the creative team behind the, the Dawn of X titles for the X-Men. What was it like being involved in something so large scale, so intricate? Uh, is a very different direction for the X-Men. What, what that, was that process like for you? So that whole thing is really, it's, you know, Jonathan Hickman's baby. Um, I'd been doing some X-Men stuff before that. And, uh, you know, he asked if I was interested in working on, on that stuff. Um, I think, like, I knew a couple years before it came out what was happening, what it was going to be all about. And it's like, you can, you know, Hickman's done some really big stuff at Marvel and this felt early days, like it was going to be another sort of giant and new direction, I guess, for the, for the X-Men. And uh, so, yeah, it just kind of felt like it was kind of weird being part of something that you knew that was probably going to blow up and become huge. And uh, honestly, I was just kind of tagging along for the ride and uh, just kind of doing doing uh, the stuff that I like doing still and trying to find a way to, to make it fit in this, this sort of new era, I guess, of the X-Men. Um, did you get a chance, uh, you know, having written New Mutants recently, uh, did you get a chance to see the film and, and you know, kind of see those characters brought to the screen? I haven't seen that film yet. Uh, I know it's just come out on iTunes. Um, I'm interested to see it. It's... Uh, I'm I'm very curious because it looks like Nightmare on Elm Street three. Um, like from the trailer, it looks like they just made a a superhero version of Nightmare on Elm Street three. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to see how true that actually is. Um, That's not too far off, yeah. actually. And you know, I just you know seeing those characters on the on the big screen, uh, you know, not that big. You know, this, this is a screen in my living room. Uh, is kind of. I'm kind of excited, but I just haven't, you know, I know it's gotten sort of uh, um, not great reviews. So I'm kind of just kind of stealing myself a little bit and letting that all die down. And we'll probably watch it in a month or two. Yeah, we actually did a a review for a couple episodes back. And and it's very much, um, you know, a product of like the transition, the odd transition, you know, from Fox to back back to you know to to disney so but but overall i i think we both both enjoyed it and and it's you know seeing those characters represented on screen was was a big part for me especially you know uh roberto da costa who's you know one of the greatest characters in all of comics all right well we'll see i i'm i'm, I'm skeptical but uh i'm hopeful <laughs> so you've uh, you've written for both old man logan and dead man logan what is it about Wolverine that keeps people coming back for more even after all this time? Not just from a writer's perspective, but even for fans. He's one of the, the most popular characters in comics. I think it's because Wolverine's awesome. Um, he's just, uh, I don't know. I think it's just, uh, you know, he's kind of an outlier even within the X-Men. Um, I think that, uh, you know, folks like that he's a dude who's ready to get his hands dirty and kind of do what needs to get done. And... Uh, I don't know. I think you know, people love that. People are just drawn to that sort of grumpy, hairy dude with claws who, who just doesn't uh, doesn't mess around. You know, uh, for me, you know, growing up, it was always cool to see that there was a, um, a Canadian uh, character, like uh, based out of Canada. Um, so the fact that Wolverine was Canadian was always great to me. I remember seeing. I think it was a. Uh, the first animated X-Men special where he had an Australian accent for some reason. Oh, yes. Pride of the X-Men. Yes, I remember that one. We we're flipping tables up here in Canada. We we're so mad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that's um, for me, it's just it's because he doesn't he, he sort of rolls by his own code that's separate and often clashes with the rest of the X-Men which I think makes him interesting in that you can send them to some dark places. You can send them off in some really interesting um, missions. He's got a lot of, he's got like a really tragic past that is, you know, you know, from a story writing standpoint, a gold mine to, to 
dip into and, and explore. Um, yeah, I think, you know, he's just a fun character who's got a lot of interesting stuff. He's, he's probably received the most development out of, I think, you know, all the X-Men characters are fairly well developed, but he's just got such a crazy rich history that, uh, just tons to do with them. I, I think for me is um, I'm a I'm a massive X Men fan. Um, I think one of the most interesting thing you know even through the years of of reading Logan's story is like how he is constantly juxtaposed against and has closer relationships, but juxtaposed with with different personalities. Like his relationship with Nightcrawler is one of my favorites. Um, his his relationship with like Jubilee and Kitty Pride is just so interesting to see how different these characters can be, and yet they they have such a closeness uh, in their relationships. Yeah, I think that's that's true. Like he's he's such a gruff personality, but uh, you know he really does have a, a big heart. You know. Um, you know, when you see him around Jubilee or, or, or other characters like that, you you get to see how sort of nurturing this guy uh, is really how nurturing he's capable of being, um, which is such a, a, a nice juxtaposition from, you know, what he's like in the battlefield. Um, and uh, yeah, I think the relationship he has with a lot of the characters, especially the younger characters, I find he has, he takes on a really great sort of, uh, mentor or father figures type of um, role with a lot of those characters that is uh, really interesting to uh, to play around with. Uh, we're always interested on on our show to get a peek behind the curtain when we get to talk to a creator, um, like like the, about the working relationship between writers and artists on comic books. Um, I you know when I think about you know my most recent experience with your work was on New Mutants, um, and and the things that Rod Rice did on on pages there is just insane. So so how does that uh, process usually work for books that you've been a part of? Is it typically, you know, separate, here's a script, you know, draw the pages, or is it more collaborative? It uh, it varies from artist to artist and project to project. Um, sometimes uh, you'll have an artist who just wants to take the script and, and just go off and do it. I think when I find out who the artist is that I'm going to be working with, um, I tend to uh, try and tailor the script to their strengths as much as possible or to what I think, you know, to what, where I think they would really excel the things that they did do really well. Uh, I try and have a conversation with the, the artist beforehand and just see like, what kind of things are they interested in drawing? What kind of story are they interested in working on just to try and make it as collaborative as possible. Uh, like I said, some artists will just take the script, go off and do the thing. Uh, there's some where, you know, I'm, constantly in contact like throughout the whole process they'll shoot me text messages or, or phone me up while they're working on a page to run an idea by me or to um just sort of spitball some ideas that they had for how we could do something differently um my favorite my favorite are those type of relationships though where it's really it's really that both of us are equally involved and we're constantly in contact and and, and constantly sort of taking apart the story uh, looking at it from different angles, trying to figure out the way that to make it as as good as possible. Uh, like I said before, I, I I would prefer I like I like it when it's you can see equal amounts of fingerprints from the two of us all over uh, all over the project, rather than just somebody who's using a script I wrote as a, a blueprint to go ahead and you know build the house. Uh, so it's different all the time. But uh, when it when it was really great, when you have that sort of almost symbiotic relationship with a, an artist, it's just absolutely incredible. There's nothing like it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, in doing research for the show, uh, we discovered that you wrote a, a crossover that we never knew we needed. <laughs> the X-Files Conspiracy Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. How in the world did the project like that come about? Uh, that's a weird one. IDW called me up. And told me that they were doing like a um, a publishing line wide X Files crossover. So there were like there was a Ninja Turtles crossover um, issue. There was a Transformers crossover, uh, X Files Transformers. Uh, I think there was an X Files Ghostbusters one. Anyway, they wanted to know if I was interested in doing the X Files Ninja Turtles crossover. And I, 
I just didn't understand how that would work. Um, and at <laughs> first, I, it was very early on for me professionally. And normally, like, I wasn't in a position to turn much down. Like, I needed work. But at the same time, I was just like, I just don't see how this would work. Um, and I asked for a few days to think about it. And um, at that time, uh, I'm not sure if you guys remember when the the um, first of the, the newer Ninja Turtles films came out and there was the rumor going around that they were going to be aliens rather than mutated turtles. Um, it was going around for a couple of months and everyone was real angry. Ah, uh, yes. And uh, that actually happened to coincide at the same time that I was, I, I was thinking about this. So I'm like, well, maybe if they think they're aliens and we can play around with that idea. That ended up coming up with an idea that is actually like also a semi-sequel to one of my favorite X-Files episodes, uh, which is called um, I think it's Bad Blood. It's written by Vince uh, Gillian, who w went on to do Breaking Bad. Um, and it's about a group of uh, vampires that are delivering pizzas uh, and, and sort of doping up the pizzas so that the people they <laughs> deliver them to uh, become more uh, uh, pliable and more easy for them to attack and, and drain their blood. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's actually a really good and weirdly a really funny episode of, uh, of um, X-Files. And it's got like a, a younger Luke Wilson in it. Uh, and that episode's told from Scully's perspective and then Mulder's perspective. Uh, so, you know, in Scully's perspective, Luke Wilson is just absolutely a stunner, handsome. And then from Mulder's perspective, he's got like buck teeth and it's just like a country hick. Uh, I just watch the episode. It's really funny. But, you know, <laughs> vampires delivering pizzas, I thought was a great in for the Ninja Turtles. And so I managed to sort of bring that all together and, and come up with an issue that I think is actually a lot of fun. Uh, I tried not to take it too seriously. Uh, I tried to just have some fun with it and, but still tried to tell, you know, a, a satisfying story for readers. But yeah, I, I agree. It's such a weird crossover but to this day. I'm so surprised it happened. <laughs> well, well, tell us about catch and release. Um, you know, nothing grabs your attention quite like the moniker, a murder book story. So catch and release is, it's a standalone graphic novel uh, that we're, you know, kickstarting to put out in hardcover. And it's a, it's the premise of it is very loosely. Uh, we have um, an ex car thief who steals a car it, 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 to back up a bit. Sorry, I guess like he, um, he sort of right now we kind of, I, I don't want, I didn't want to dwell on the pandemic at all in the comic, even though it takes place during this current pandemic, but I did want to involve it somehow and acknowledge it and and part of the way that i did that is that this this main character he works in construction and uh he's not working right now and uh as a result he's completely broke he's he's drowning in debt he's about to get kicked out of his rental because he can't pay his rent he's got child support there's a million bills hanging over his head and sort of he one of the ways he kind of acts out just to take some control is he steals a car just to see if he can. He used to steal cars when he was younger all the time. He's a bit older now and <clears throat> he just wants to, you know, see if he can still do it. And sure enough, he can. And he's got this car in his garage now and he doesn't know what to do with it. He knows he can sort of piece it out, sell out parts, but he needs money fast. So him and his, his, um, his friend, who's named Chris, uh, they come up with this plan. Uh, they know they can't actually sell the car because they don't have the paperwork to sell the car. Uh, in Nova Scotia here, you need a certificate uh, to transfer ownership that is not kept anywhere. Obviously in the car, it's something you keep at home in your file. Um, so they come up with this plan to list the car for sale. And what they're gonna do is list the car for sale it's $6,500 they're selling it for. And in the ad, very bold, it says cash only. And their plan is to lure out 
unsuspecting buyers like uh, to a remote location, show them the car, let them test drive and stuff, and get them ready to buy, and then rob them at gunpoint. And they have a, a, a this plan that if they can do this multiple times, you know, they can clear almost twenty grand, and they're both going to be fine. They're both not you know going to have to worry about money for a little bit. It's short term thinking, but it's way of getting out of uh, the debt. Um, on the other side, we have Samir and Alex. Uh, Samir is a student who um, is moving from Halifax to Vancouver and his car has given out on him. It just died. And he's got only a few days before he has to leave. He's desperate to get a new car, uh, finds uh, Andrew's ad on uh, a local marketplace news uh, website. And so it goes out to, you know, inspect and buy this car. And <clears throat> the this is that is kind of where the story really kicks off. You know, that's everything I described is sort of the opening bits of the story. Uh, the story is really about what happens during that robbery, how things go badly wrong, uh, how the four characters um, either try to escape or deal with the situation that they're in. Uh, and, and what is not necessarily a minor crime, but, you know, it, it's a, not a, a violent crime becomes something else completely different. And so it's about them uh, dealing with the consequences of what they've done and trying to uh, keep themselves out of prison. It's, uh, it gets pretty dark. It gets a little bit upsetting. And uh, uh, I'll say not everyone makes it out uh, alive. So that's, yeah, that's basically the story. That's fascinating. Uh, in a lot of ways, Catch and Release is a, a return to what brought you uh, your first bit of notoriety as a writer. What makes the crime genre so special to you? What inspired your affinity for it? I you know I've always just been drawn to crime fiction, uh, be it like comics, uh, novels, uh, film. Um, I grew up in a house. Um, uh, when my parents were still together, my dad was a, a, a police officer and my mom was a, a, a nurse who worked for a while with victim services, which was sort of an on-call unit um, that went out, would be called out to very specific sort of um, uh, victim situations where, where they needed a nurse uh, on hand. Uh, so that was kind of like dinner table talk growing up, like, you know, hearing about my dad's day on the force, my mom's day dealing with uh, situation she was uh so it was kind of around um then when i was you know a, a young teen up until i was probably about 17 i was a bit of a juvenile delinquent as well uh getting into lots of trouble and uh i think i still like i i, I mellowed out around the time i was 18 uh 17 18 i came like a real chicken uh, wouldn't like would not do the stuff I did when I was younger. Um, like I never killed anyone or <laughs> like that. But uh, you know, I I got up I got up some mischief, <laughs> and um, so I think there it's just always something. There's I don't know. There's always been this sort of interest in that, and I think uh, part of what sort of set me. There's a a few things that sort of set me straight. Um, and one was like a, uh, my mom moved us, uh, my parents split, uh, and my mom moved us to the other side of the country, uh, and got me out of the sort of the environment I was in, um, when I was younger, which sort of helped things. Um, and, you know, I, I had sort of a, a bit of a run in with the law when I was about 16, I think, uh, nothing too serious, but, uh, serious enough. Uh, to scare me straight, I think. Um, and so like, that was just sort of, you know, growing up a bit of the environment I was in and, and sort of how I was living at the time. Uh, but then I, even after I, you know, I, I sort of straightened out, got my nose clean. I was always sort of fascinated with, with crime fiction and, and, and crime just sort of in general, like a, even, you know, reading a lot of nonfiction reporting on it. And I have had like, you know, you know, I wrote a book called The Violent, which was about uh, a couple of recovered drug addicts in Vancouver 
um, and the effects sort of of um, of one of them sliding back into past addiction and the effect of the housing market in Vancouver, which is crazy uh, and has like a lot of sort of downward pressure on on those in lower income brackets. Um, that story you know, was loosely, very loosely based on a couple that I knew that moved to Vancouver and had fallen into drugs. Um, so there, there are sometimes parts of my life that I do pull into these stories, like parts of, of things that I, I, I've been around, but, you know, I, I try, I fictionalize it as much as possible. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just something that uh, fascinates me. And I kind of rambled on that answer. I'm sorry. No, not at all. It's, it's fascinating kind of getting a peek behind the curtain. You know, a lot of times, you know, um, you know, I, myself, it's like, you know, I used to watch this TV show growing up or, or, you know, I used to read, you know, these types of novels and, and things, but here, like, you know, kind of a source of inspiration being like actual, you know, personal life events is, is really a change from what uh, we're, we're used to hearing in a lot of interviews. So it's really, really interesting. Yeah. And just to be clear, like, you know, like I, even though I was a bit of a juvenile, like I was not any sort of like little gangster or anything like that. I was, uh, you know, it was mostly just like, you know, shitty kid you went to high school with doing crappy things. Cause he's angry all the time. <laughs> uh, stuff and, and you know lots of shoplifting and stuff as well uh but uh yeah a lot of shoplifting i used to get in a lot of fights when i was younger just uh because uh yeah i don't know just an angry kid so, sounds like a character from like a 90s sitcom or something <laughs> now with titles on your resume like ghostwriter uh you know two, the two logan titles uncanny x-men new mutants um why why is uh you know returning to a creator-owned uh title like this uh the right decision right now i'd always thought that i would be able to balance work for hire work and creator on work um you know because i i spent you know like I, I said earlier like you know i've spent since like 94 doing creator owned stuff or and, and self-published work um but it turns out that like you know the work fire stuff became it just demanded so much of my time that i just didn't have time for creator own which is you know not a complaint you know it, it's great to be busy it's great to have a lot of work on my plate it's great to be able to keep the lights on and such but um with the with the whole pandemic uh work slowed down for a while and i'd always been talking about how i wanted to get back to creator owned and also like just like pandemic aside like not if we if we just took out the pandemic uh is it's been a weird and and uh really crappy year like there's just been like one thing after another uh happening just on my end here and i know for a lot of people as well that uh, there's a, a domino effect by the pandemic but just like it's been a weird year i, I felt sort of um off i guess um just because I've, I've just been dealing with some weird shit and uh i i felt like i needed to sort of just center myself and needed to just take some time and just work on something that would bring me uh joy and uh, again not say that the books i've worked on at marvel don't but it's just like there's something else about a creator own thing where it, it kind of feeds your soul a little bit more and murder book specifically is something I wanted to get back to. And so when things slowed down, I need, I knew I needed to you know, grab hold of that time, take advantage of it uh, and make sure I didn't waste any of it. And uh, so I just sat down uh, and started writing catch and release. And uh, yeah, here we are. The, uh, the artwork from Lysandro Asterin is incredibly um, impactful. Tell us a little bit uh, about your working relationship with him and the decision to go with with black and white art in particular. So he and I worked on a book together uh, several years ago at Boom Studios uh, called The Last Contract, uh, which was a story about a um, an eighty year old retired hitman who was on the uh, who was showing signs of early onset Alzheimer's, who. Uh, wakes up one night to find out someone's trying to kill him and he doesn't know why. And it's sets off this, this journey where he, he goes cross country with his incontinent dog and tries to sort of figure out why these people are trying to kill him. He's been out, out of the hitman business for over 20, 25 years. Um, 
And that was like just an incredibly fun book to work on. And uh, Lissandra in, in particular, his artwork was just so incredible. It was such a good mood for the entire book. He's got like a European sensibility that I love a lot. That reminds me uh, of one of my favorite artists, which is a guy named GP. Uh, who like he doesn't, they don't, they're not the same, but they have this like style wise, but similar sensibilities. And I just kind of love it. Um, and one of the things when we did, uh, uh, the last contract is when his pages would come in, he'd do these beautiful ink wash black and white pages and the coloring on, like, uh, we brought in a colorist who colored everything and the, the colorist was great, made it look great. But the black and white stuff, uh, there was just something so powerful about it that I knew that if I ever got a chance to work with him again, I wanted to do something that was just straight and black and white. And also the murder book historically uh, has been in black and white. We did a couple short stories in color uh, that were printed in the back of a, an image book a while ago, but everything else had been in black and white. And so when I was working on this one, when I was writing it, I kind of had Lissandro in mind, even though I hadn't talked to him. I didn't know if he was available. I didn't want to, I was in the zone when I was writing it and kind of didn't want to break that, didn't want to, um, uh, jinx myself by talking to artists when I was ha um, halfway through a script. Um, but, you know, thankfully he was available. Weirdly, at the same time, there's an Argentine, uh, a publisher from Argentina that is publishing a, a translated edition of The Last Contract, the book we worked on. And so he and I ended up doing an interview together for this publisher, you know, for, for prom promotional purposes. And afterwards, we just got to talking. He and I had talked a lot when we were working on the last contract and had talked about working together again. I think I tried to get him on a project a few years ago, but he got he was tied up, uh, I think, with Redneck uh, when he was starting that. And so that didn't work out. But it just managed to hit him at a time where he had a gap in his schedule. I had the script and he was ready to go. And uh, yeah, he's he's got one of those relationships that I talked about earlier where we will converse back and forth about pages and, and talk about them. He sends, you know, sometimes if he thinks about changing things, he'll send some ideas and they're always great. And so it's a it's an incredibly collaborative process between he and I and it's a, I'm loving it. And his his pages are just beautiful. Yeah, there's something so raw, especially, you know, I think with it being in black and white, too, there's just incredibly evocative too. just seeing just what what's on the Kickstarter site. I'm actually quite curious. Um, this is something that I've been discussing with with some uh, other comic book friends in the past. And that I was, I was wondering, since you seem to enjoy black and white art, what is your take on them reissuing the Walking Dead series now uh, as a color comic book? I always found that book works so well in black and white. I was kind of surprised they decided to go that route. I was, I'd be interested in what your take is on that. My take is going to be a little bit colored, uh, no pun intended, uh, because it's a good friend of mine who's coloring it, um, who uh, has been working on it for like four years. And that and that guy actually hid that he was working on it for so long. I knew he was working on a big project, but he wouldn't say what it was. Um, but I I don't... I think it's fine. Like, I think if, if it still works in color, uh, you know, Dave McKay, who's coloring it, it's a smart colorist. I think he's going to do great work on it. Um, I, I'm for me, either way is fine. I think some stuff needs to just stay in, in black and white. Uh, I think the walking dead from what I've seen so far works in color. Um, uh, so I'm not, I don't have a strong opinion about that particular book, like being in color or being in black and white. Um, I think either is fine. All right. Now we featured several creators on the show who have utilized crowdfunding sites like Kickstarter or Indiegogo for their personal projects. Uh, what's your take on this, you know, pretty momentous shift towards sites like these for creators? Yeah. Well, so I've been eyeballing Kickstarter for a while now, and this is just the first time where I've managed to sit down and write something that would fit there. Um, I think it's interesting because right now, uh, because of the pandemic, because of future, you know, economic uncertainty, um, publishers are a little bit more hesitant than normal to take risks. Um, so they're really looking for things that, you know, they 
can reasonably expect will do well for them. Um, and I think some creators, you know, we've got like pet projects that we want to do that we think are worth the risk, but it's, it's sometimes hard to convince uh, publishers that it is, you know, with catch and release in, in, for instance, it's hard to convince a publisher to do a, you know, a 72 page black and white hardcover graphic novel. It's just, it's not something that kind of fits within their publishing framework for the most part. So for me, it just seemed like the logical choice to take it to Kickstarter to just do this thing um, that we want to do without having to um, capitulate any any part of the process to anyone else. Uh, I think I like it because it's it creates more of an intimate situation. I think where you know you're dealing almost it's almost like a direct relationship just between the reader and the creator. And you don't have to worry about the publisher and the uh, and the distributor and such. Um, I have added a tier where we are trying to, and I think I've seen others do the same, where they are trying to make sure that local comic shops uh, aren't left out of the whole process, so that they can still carry the book and, and get it to their customers. But I think it's just uh, it's a great site for for folks to take some risks and, and do books that might be just harder to push through a traditional publisher. And I think. Uh, ultimately, that's going to be good for uh, both creators and for readers. I think you're going to get interesting projects. And <clears throat> it just opens your yourself up to be able to experiment some more and do some stuff, some fun stuff. Now, you also have some really incredible rewards for this Kickstarter, including original art pieces, an appearance in the book itself, and our absolute favorite script reviews from yourself and fellow creators, Matthew Rosenberg and Kelly Thompson. Can you tell us more about that? About specifically the script reviews or everything? The whole thing is fascinating, but the script reviews in particular are interesting. Yeah, well, I think, you know, in creating the sort of the tiers, I'm just, we're just trying to figure out what it is, uh, what would people want? What's exciting uh, for folks? What are they going to want to back? For myself, you know, I always want original art pieces. Uh, that appearance in the book, I, I wasn't sure, but like that went in like five minutes. I think it was absolutely just gone immediately. Uh, the script reviews are things that I've seen other people do on their Kickstarters. I think, uh, you know, it's something that is helpful for for folks who are trying to uh, break into the industry or, or they want to do their own book, uh, but don't necessarily have access to editors or don't have access to people who are working in the industry. So I think it's, a, it's an interesting way to sort of get some sort of direct feedback and, and get some guidance. And, uh, you know, hopefully that helps whoever backs it, you know, get their project off the ground or, or, or maybe just tighten up their script or, or whatever it is. Um, I'm nervous about, <laughs> about doing it. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, th those are things I like to see when I'm looking at a Kickstarter. And so just figured we'd turn around and just offer the same. Are there any other projects that are coming up um, in, in addition to catch and release that you have the ability to tease your audience or, or are you uh, bound by secrets? Yeah, unfortunately I, so one of the frustrations uh, of this pandemic again is that I actually was in the process of wrapping up most of the books I had currently been working on just before the pandemic hit. Um, and I was feeling like, uh, I sort of allude, alluded to earlier, I was a little bit, uh, there some stuff that happened early in the year that uh, is not overly tragic. It's just like, you know, house problems that I you know, had to fix that was stressing me out. So I needed to take like a little bit of downtime, right? So I, I was handing off some stuff and I wasn't really setting up new projects at Marvel just because I needed uh, just a, a few weeks to get my bearings. Um, and it just happened uh, that those few weeks I was getting my bearings is when the pandemic really affected everything. And all of a sudden, all new projects got put on hold. Uh, so I, um, I wasn't starting on new projects as soon as I was hoping. So, you know, I didn't start until, until later. And as a result, those announcements are, have been pushed back. Um, so there's nothing I can, this is a very long, long, explanation for why i can't announce anything but uh yeah i have projects coming up but uh they're not coming out until early next year and so i can't really say what they are uh, i'm pretty excited about them 
and I'm still here uh, sort of, I'm talking to a couple publishers about doing creator-owned stuff as well. And uh, a couple other things in the works. So I've got a lot in the works and not anything I can talk about. Well, we'll definitely keep our eyes peeled for any uh, upcoming announcements. Um, so where can our listeners go to support you, your work, and particularly catch and release? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter, and I'm just at Ed Brisson. Um, and from there, you, I am all over Twitter being like a total um, carny barker right now, trying to get everyone to back uh, catch and release. So if you, if you follow me on Twitter, uh, you will see me talk about catch and release probably about four or five times a day. Um, yeah, I think if you just go to the easiest thing is just go to Kickstarter and search catch and release. You can find the book there. Uh, you can see some of the stuff we are offering. One of the, actually the stretch goals we just uh, offered, if we hit 20,000, which we're closing in on, we're going to be releasing a digital uh, director's cut of the book, which is a, like 200 plus pages of the book, which includes the original script. It includes uh, all the thumbnails, the character designs, all the pencil pages, then the final ink pages, uh, a bunch of location photos that I took for Lissandro. So, you know, we're we're still adding more in, in terms of rewards. So, you know, if we hit 20,000, then everybody who's backed it already gets that director's cut. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, but mostly just find me on Twitter. That's the easiest place. Or you can check out my website, which is edbrisson.com. And you could subscribe to my newsletter through there, which I usually send out about once a week or once every two weeks, depending. Uh, and lately, I've been including some free comics in there for folks to read. All right, Ed, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Ed Brisson. The book is Catch and Release, a murder book story. Headed to Kickstarter and support that. I personally... At the at the eleventh hour, I was able to get that early bird special and get and get my hardcover edition. So super excited to to see this develop. Um, Ed, thanks so much for stopping by the show today. All right, thanks a lot. When we come back from this, our final break, we're going to hit you with two more nerd commendations for this and another week. Welcome back to our final segment, Nerd Commendations. We own the patent on this, and we will pursue legal litigation if you use without expressed or written consent of Dave and Chris. Um, Dave, <laughs> your nerd commendation, your nerd commendation makes me very, very happy, and something that I did not know existed. What do you have for us? So I've spoken several times on this podcast about the impact Batman the Animated Series had on me as a child. It inspired a wave of comic book reading and continues to stand as my all-time favorite Batman adaptation. And I don't think I'm alone in that assessment. So imagine my delight when DC Comics essentially decided to bring the band back together. In April of 2020, they launched Batman The Adventures Continue, uh, a digital first comic that is a continuation and expansion of the animated series continuity. The book is co-written by Paul Dini and Alan Burnett, producers on the original series, and illustrated by Ty Templeton, who's worked on previous animated series-inspired comics. The book makes an effort to continue the visual and storytelling style of the original series. At the same time, it also introduces characters that were never seen in the original series, such as Azrael, Deathstroke, and even second Robin Jason Todd. To say that I love this book would probably be an understatement. It definitely tickles my nostalgia bone, but it also stands as a high-quality Batman adaptation. In an age when Animaniacs and Tiny Toons are celebrating revivals, why can't Warner bring back this gem of a show? Now, if we can't have the animated series back itself, at the very least we have this comic book. And if you like the animated series, if you like Batman, and if you like good storytelling, read Batman The Adventures Continue. Uh, Paul Dini writing Batman again is good in my book at any point. Well, I'm I'm excited to hear um, that it actually holds up, and you know, I'm 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 a person who's very very cautious and and very very skeptical at times when it comes to nostalgia. 
Um, you know, sometimes, you know, things are, are best left, you know, in the past and when you enjoyed them and, and you, sometimes you can't go home again. Um, I'm a huge Chris Claremont fan. And, and when he returned to a lot of the X-Men books, uh, the stories, you just couldn't recapture that magic. So, so I, you know, I was excited, but then, you know, also like, you know, a little bit cautious, but, but hearing that it actually holds up and that, you know, they were able to recapture that, that spark and, and then that inspiration. And then it's actually a good story as, as we, you know, pine for so often on this show, that's really, really exciting. And I'm definitely checking this one out. Yeah. And it's so, it's so nice to know that these writers have not missed a step. The voice of each character is so clear in the writing. You know, you can almost hear Kevin Conroy's Batman voice coming out of the comic book. It is absolutely amazing. So, Chris, what is your nerd commendation for this week? Well, uh, I kind of buried the lead a couple of weeks ago um, with this series, but I'm I'm giving it its full nerd commendation here, and that's Amazing Spider-Man Renew Your Vows. Um, there are actually two volumes of this. Um, the first volume is just a five-issue um you know you know just mini series uh that was written in 2015 by Dan Slott with art by Adam Kubert and this was taking place during the secret wars where you know you had all these different you know battle realms and stuff uh with with the with that event going on um and it takes place in an alternate reality of Earth uh, 18119 in which Spider-Man, Peter Parker, and Mary Jane Watson are married and have a daughter named Annie. So basically it's like, what if, the, you know, one more day would have never happened and they would just, you know, stayed married and you'll get to see Peter Parker as a dad. And it's the most wholesome and the most beautiful thing. Uh, and Annie is just awesome like she is such a compelling such a fun character she's full of piss and vinegar and you just cannot help but just adore annie may parker um and then you know it it was um you know a really really well received and then they brought it back um in 2016 and it ran through uh, 2018 as part of the marvel now uh, the second volume, and that was, you know, taken up, uh, written by Jerry Conway, uh, and, and the art was done by Ryan Stegman. And and Jerry Conway um, actually left the book um, after about eight or nine issues because he, he had a disagreement with editorial about the inclusion of Venom. So then Ryan Stegman took over, you know, um, the writing actually, and then uh, you know, had various artists on after that. Um, and then what, you know, a- after that arc finished i was like okay so it looks like this is about to end but then jody hauser came in and breathed kind of new life into the series with issue 13 um and i'm currently you know reading up the last fish final issues but it, she um she fast forwards um eight years and and annie is now in high school and you know it's so it's really cool to see her as like a 16 year old sophomore um and you can't help but but look at the parallels between herself and and Peter from you know the the Lee Ditko era and, and and just you know seeing the you know the generation continue and just seeing her fleshed out as a character in her own right and and kind of stepping out of the shadow of her of her parents and 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 you know having some you know identity of her own and and it, it, she was actually involved in uh, a Spider Geddon spinoff um, called Spider Girls, um, and Spider Geddon, you know, was a, another one of those. Let's mash up all the Spider characters and look at this. This is cool. Um, and and the the Spider Geddon proper was you know kind of boring and, and not so eventful. And I honestly think the best thing to come out of of that was the Spider Girls, you know, supporting issues um, where where Annie was uh, teaming up with um, 616 uh, Spider-Girl Anya Corazon and um, Mayday Parker from MC2. And it was just really, really fun with really, really great characters and and just seeing them shine on their own. But uh, yeah, Amazing Spider-Man, Renew Your Vows. Um, Definitely check this one out. If you're a Spider-Man fan, it's just really wholesome and it it really captures the heart of of, Spider-Man comics. It's so funny how we just talked about this a couple of episodes ago. The whole notion that ending the spider marriage was not the key to more storytelling opportunities, but in fact eliminated potential stories, well, like this one. 
I loved Renew Your Vows with a red-hot glowing passion. The book basically represents what Spider-Man should have become post-Clone Saga, a husband and father who tries to balance family life with superheroics. And I really love the ongoing that spun out of the initial miniseries too. You know, it's funny that I didn't quite enjoy enjoy aging up Annie as much. Um, I see this as a pattern oftentimes in comic books that that they don't want to linger on children just being children. Um, let you know, let kids be kids for a while. The Superman books under uh, Bendis just did something similar not too long ago. John Kent was this great kid character. Uh, his uh, relationship with Damian Wayne was super interesting. We got a great series out of that, the Super Sons, uh, and then. Bendis comes along, takes over Superman, and just ages him up into a teenager and ships him off with the Legion of Superheroes. And now he's just another moody teen. Uh, We get a lot of teenagers in comic books. I mean, a lot. So when we have a child character that is written as well uh, as Annie Mae Parker is, as well as John Kent was, uh, I, I would prefer if they stayed like that for a while. But yeah, I read this. I wish it was still going on. Uh, Or better yet, that the main continuity would try a setup like this for a while. So I totally echo your nerd commendation. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man Renew Your Vows is, well, you know, amazing, pun intended. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's really interesting that he did that when he did the exact same thing to Miles Morales, you know, when he was writing that title. So maybe this is a trend for for Bendis. But... um... Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree, and and it was so much fun. But um, at the same time, I, I you know I enjoyed both. Um, so, but either way, if you're if you love Spider Man, definitely check out this title. Um, and that wraps up an, another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We thank you so much for your support. We thank Ed Brisson for stopping by for this interview. Definitely go check out uh, Catch and Release. Uh, a murder book story on Kickstarter, some really fantastic, just the fact that you can have the scripts to reviews by comics pros is just really, really cool. So if you're an aspiring writer uh, and you want, you know, somebody to, to, to look over your, your stuff, definitely go look over that as well. Um, but again, thank you all so much for your support. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at nerd by word. Um, you can find us on Facebook at the Nerd Byword, and then uh, individually on Instagram and Twitter at that Nerd Dave and that Nerd Chris, respectively. And if you enjoy the show, please be sure to drop us a, a five star rating and a review uh, at whatever podcasting platform that you uh, catch us on. We are, of course, available on Apple Podcasts and uh, pretty much any other platform imaginable, uh, including now uh, on Amazon Music. And as always, we want you to stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. <laughs>